life of beta blockers. There's no life at all. What? We're not alone. From last night? Aye, from last night. Though what drove me to such a recklessness, I can't say. I'm Riley. And this is Will. Oh, nice try. But you can just call me... The Old Man of Hoy. What's his name? He doesn't trust us. Of course I don't trust you. I barely escaped with my frontal lobes from your wee disco. So did we. It seems like you took your blockers at the same time we took ours. Aye. Maybe it's true that you got out like me by the hair on your chinny chin. Or maybe, just maybe, you were supposed to get out. He thinks the concert was a BPO trap. I see more than my fair share of snares. You didn't remain free for 30 years by being the trusting kind. Now, whether I'm right or wrong about you, I suspect we'll be seeing each other again soon enough. Welcome back to Who and Company. I'm Brent. And I'm Drew. We're joined this month by blogger, podcaster, and author Alyssa Frankie. We'll discuss her history with Doctor Who, the hectic world of podcasting, and her contribution to Upverse Books' Black Archive series, with an in-depth look at the Series 9 story, Hellbent. After which, we'll examine the Netflix original series, Sense8, a very engaging action-comedy-drama about eight very different people leading very different lives scattered all over the world but are all somehow connected. In fact, it was so loved and adored by its fans that they demanded a two-and-a-half-hour wrap-up movie, which aired a year after the Series 2 cancellation cliffhanger. But before we get to that interview, we'd like to let listeners know that we'll have a special episode featuring our UK team sometime in early September, so be on the lookout for that. And that's all coming up right after this. She says so. Why would you even do that? I was dead. I was dead and gone. Why? Why would you even do that to yourself? I had a duty of care. Listen, I'm nearly through here. If I'm right, there should be a service dock under here. We'll be able to get to the old workshops. Okay, listen. I have something I need to say. We do not have time. No, my time. My time is up, Doctor. Between one heartbeat and the last is all the time I have. People like me and you, 
We should say things to one another. And I'm gonna say them now. This month's guest is a prolific member of Doctor Who fandom, from her popular blog, Whovian Feminism, to her weekly podcast, This Week in Time Travel, on the Incomparable Network. And now, she's written a book. Alyssa Frankie, welcome to Who and Company. Hello, it's great to be here. Thanks for joining us. You know, we <clears throat> initially asked you to come on, I think, a little earlier in the summer, but then, of course, you informed us that your book was coming out in August, so we thought, well, this is, this is perfect. Let's do it now. Timing was serendipitous. Well, timing seems to be everything, which is uh, one of the first things I wanted to ask you about, because you are a, like I said in the intro, a very prolific writer. Um, your blog, between your tweets, uh, you have a weekly podcast, which is something I, I do not envy. Uh, how do you manage all of this? Um, what is your secret? Coffee and lack of sleep? Uh, <laughs> it's better now than it has been in the past. Um, I've been a little bit on hiatus on the blog uh, as I get through uh, some other things going on in my life. The weekly podcast uh, has been going great, and that's taken up the sort of bulk of my time at the moment. Uh, and now that the book is officially out there in the world, and I don't have to do any more edits or change it any more <laughs> times, uh, that's just a whole load off my mind. I can just bask in receiving everybody's compliments and praise and maybe a few comp a uh, few criticisms, but they haven't arrived yet. So it's a it's a nice time to uh, uh, be doing all the work that I do because it's a little bit of a slow period. Well, that's nice. You need to have those occasionally, right? Exactly. That's what August is for, right? Do you work better when you have deadlines and a bunch of things? Or do you like to have more free time? I know it seems like a weird question, but some people work differently. I am very much a deadline and pressure-driven person. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a part of myself that I particularly like, and I have been working to try to improve it. Um, but there's just something chemically, physically in my brain that it's very hard for me to be able to... Uh, really produce my best content when I don't have a deadline staring at the back of my head. And I have no idea why this is. I do try to work in advance sometimes. And then I look at the stuff that I produced when I wasn't on a deadline and go, what the heck is this, you know, dirt here? Why am I putting that out into the world? And then the deadline makes me focus and produce it even better than it did before. So uh, it's I would like a lot less stress in my life. I would like to be able to be one of those people that just serenely gets everything done and creates a lot of free time. Instead, I just panic and I'm anxious about things for a very long time until the deadline approaches. I'm not 100% sure those people that you mentioned exist, uh, <laughs> at least not in my experience. I'm certainly... I'm certainly someone who needs a deadline. Otherwise, I will procrastinate until... Uh, it's sort of like Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams said, I love deadlines. I love the sound they make when they go whizzing past over your head. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I have, uh, and I think as many of us have, really enjoyed your weekly podcast that you do with Chip. Um, what drew you to the medium of podcasting? 
I think it was just that it was something I hadn't done before. You know, the very first podcast that I appeared on, um, it was at Gallifrey One, and a few friends pulled me aside and just said, we're doing a podcast now about the convention. I'm like, I've never done this before. I'm going to be awful. And I spoke at a million miles an hour, and you couldn't understand me. Um, <laughs> but it was fun and exciting and, and good to have those kinds of in-person conversations about the stuff that we were all enjoying at the same time. I'm very much a person that I do enjoy writing, but being able to talk out loud about the stuff that I'm writing about helps me really focus and narrow in on my point. And it does it a lot quicker than what I usually do, which is write the same thing three times over until I realize what it is I'm trying to say and then rewrite the whole thing. Um, so podcasting is, it's a fun additional medium. It's a fun way to sort of just get my brain working slightly differently about the things that I'm thinking about. Yeah. I I, mean, I completely understand that. It's one of those things where also it goes along with um, the deadline in preparation. I like podcasting because I can do my research a little bit ahead of time. But then once you get on the mic and you're talking, that's it. This is this is the moment. You know, you don't have to worry about a, a script uh, and uh, you can just say what comes into your mind. Yep. Uh, so do you prefer one over the other? Because, you know, obviously you are a writer and you're very, uh, I'm going to use the term prolific a lot because I think it applies. Um, <laughs> but because of the blog, which is something that you can do on a, a very regular basis, uh, you are putting down your thoughts quite succinctly, uh, have, being as a fan of your blog, um, I'm always impressed by someone who can, um, let's see, I feel like you are supporting your beliefs uh, and you're doing so and reacting quickly to news events or um, storylines or responding to, uh, responding to other people's comments. Whereas I find, for me, it really requires a lot more thinking because I'm not always 100% sure in my... Uh, he says, stalling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sure, what I want to say. You know, sometimes I'm not 100% sure how I want to represent myself in one medium or the other. And so that's my main uh, problem sometimes with writing is it requires a lot of thinking. And like you said, editing. Um, but with mm -hmm. something like podcasting, you just say it and then it's out there. I kind of like that both of them can complement the other for me. Um, it gets my brain thinking in two entirely different ways because when you're speaking, you have to just think of something and say it immediately and try to edit and make it as concise as possible when you're speaking. But people naturally allow for speech to have a slightly different rhythm, to have pauses, to have moments where you kind of loop back and repeat yourself and hone in on the point later. Uh, but writing is a little bit less forgiving in that. You are expected to put into the, the time to refine and hone your point before you hit publish. You know, right. it's, it's uh, especially with a blog and not a chat room, you know, like that's, that, is, that is what you are supposed to be doing. So podcasting for me helps me think of new things and helps me practice out um, my thoughts and my 
and figure out exactly how it is that I want to say it. And then it brings me over to writing, which is where I can really just sort of drill down onto the points that I've been saying uh, and really focus in on one or two aspects of it. Um, So for me, I don't really have a preference between them. I kind of like the transition back and forth between both of them to be able to practice in one and refine in the other. And sometimes I'm doing it the other way around. Sometimes I've written something on a blog and then I talk to a friend who reads it afterwards and think about something differently. And then we all get on a podcast together and Hmm. the whole point just shifts and change and expands because there's different voices. You know, the blog is me in my head on my own writing something down. A podcast is people conversing and exchanging ideas and growing something new out of that exchange. Um, So both mediums complement and help one another. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. Um, and that's kind of the point, too, is to have uh, that conversation, right? Especially when we're talking about fandom and we're discussing um, likes and dislikes or views and opinions, it's always nice to have that conversation because if we are to be stagnant, then nothing really happens, right? right? Like, nothing grows from that. Exactly. So uh, when did you first discover Doctor Who and, and what is it about that show that engaged you at the time and still engages you now when you're watching new episodes? So I discovered Doctor Who when I was in college. Uh, a friend of mine who lived on the same floor as me in the dorms uh, had been watching Doctor Who for a while since it had first come back in 2005. And she was really into it. She loved it a lot and she was surprised I hadn't heard of it or seen it. Um, and so she pulled me into her dorm room. It was, as they say, a dark and stormy night. And she showed me Blink and I was terrified out of my mind. Um, uh, but it was so it was so fascinating and so good and so original. Um, and I think one of the things that caught me with it was that the show was so flexible. You know, I went and I started binging all of the seasons that were available up to that point. Um, and they were only just starting season six when I joined. Uh, and so... It was a very different show at very different times. You know, you had the Eccleston series, which sort of stood on its own as its own unique thing. And it led into the Tenant years, but those were also sort of different and a little bit on their own. And then, of course, there's the complete changeover uh, that happened when you get into the Matt Smith years. It's a uh, entirely new production team. It's a new actor. It's entirely new sets and studios that you're working with. Well, not studios, but entirely new sets uh, that you're working with. And then at that point, I started learning about Classic Who, and I started going back. And the Classic series represents so many different eras of television at that point you're not even talking about like you know a changeover in showrunners you're talking about rapidly uh changing tv production styles you're talking about entirely new technologies that are getting tested out uh sometimes very very early on very first days on doctor who so It felt like something that didn't ever really get stagnant for me, that there were always new actors, new storylines, and just almost like entirely different shows all the way through. Um, So it was something that could just constantly keep me engaged, keep me interested, and keep me on my toes. You know, there's you were going now into season 11 and I have no idea what to expect. You know, we have an entirely new 
team again. We have a new doctor, the first woman doctor. It's going to be a very different show than it was even two years ago. And there's very few shows that can be quite as flexible and adaptable as that, that they can take their audience through so many different styles. So for me, it was just something that caught my imagination, caught my attention, and then was able to just sort of constantly keep me engaged because it never really became the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, And even now, once I've seen almost all of the classic series, I have one serial that I have not watched because if I watch it, it will be over. And so I can't watch it. Um, (laughs) But like, there's still big Finnish audios and there's books and there's the Target adaptations, which are in in and of themselves different and new interpretations of stories we already know. Um, So it's just very hard to get into the show and then ever be bored. Can I ask which, uh, which serial you haven't watched yet? So the last story that I haven't seen um, is the third Doctor story, Day of the Daleks, which I have been told is exceptional and very, very good. And I very much look forward to seeing it one day. But if I see it, it will be done. And the third Doctor is sort of my doctor from the classic series. And Joe is my companion. So I can't watch it because then if I watch it, it will be done. (laughs) That is not an uncommon sentiment when we, we talk to folks on this program. Uh, because we have a lot of people who are like, I love this show. There's a reason why we're talking about these these shows, not just Doctor Who, but but the, uh, the other programs that we talk on. And uh, it's it's happened on more than one occasion where they said we haven't finished one or two episodes just because when that happens, it's done, and that experience is is not over per se. But then there will be no new things to watch, and I, and I get that excitement um, about discovering new things about something that you love right that's one of the advantages of doctor who is that yes it might be the last classic episode but you still have a whole season coming up in a considerably shorter period of time than it was you know say 16 months ago yeah Uh, i think for me it's not even so much being excited about new material it's being able to say goodbye to something that was dearly important to you and that's just sort of what this story is like for me because i i don't actually like the third doctor's final story i think the the goodbye for him is a little bit rubbish um so like this for me will be like saying goodbye to the third doctor and i'm not ready for that (laughs) uh make make sure when you watch it that you watch the original and then watch the uh the new uh, special edition version also. I'll have to check and see if my DVD has that version. They're both really great, but um, they're very different. So it's worth watching both of them. That way, if you do watch it, then you still have another one you haven't seen yet. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Is he your favorite doctor or? He's my favorite of the classic series. Um, Of the classic series, he's definitely my doctor. And I do have to sort of consider them separately um, because they are enough of different TV shows. And also I can't narrow it down to more than, you know, to less than two. Like I cannot pick one. There's has to be at least two. Um, So he's, he is my favorite of the classic series. And what is it about him that you, that stands out over the others? I mean, I mean, it's it's so hard to pin down. I think part of it is I very much enjoy that era of Doctor Who, um, and there's a lot of very interesting stories from that time that I really just sort of personally connect with. Um, a lot of it was that I really connected with Joe Grant, um, who just sort of happened into my life at kind of a perfect moment. I started watching The Third Doctor uh, right after I graduated from college, and I was just sort of brand new into the workforce, fairly young, uh, constantly worried about 
not messing everything up. And Joe was kind of like that perfect person I needed at that time to be a little bit uncertain, a little unsure, um, but also uh, finding her place and finding her courage. And I loved the dynamic that they really had between uh, John Pertwee and Katie Manning. Um, mm-hmm. I think part of it was as well that Pertwee's doctor really just sort of reminded me of a lot of people that I dearly loved in my life. You know, there's kind of alarming similarities between the third doctor and my grandpa. Uh, And like they pulled some of the same facial expressions. Like the first time I saw, you know, Pertwee just sort of messing about with his face and pulling funny faces and doing weird things with his eyebrows. I'm like, that's my grandpa. That's exactly what he used to do. Um, and his his sort of manner of speaking was alarmingly similar to my dad sometimes. You know, the type of uh, acerbic, sharp, witty, but sometimes almost slightly too mean humor. It was one of those, even at the moments where I think that Pertwee's portrayal of the doctor gets the most troubling and the most problematic. It doesn't personally disturb me too much on that level because I I know people like that. I know what they're like. I know how they operate. Um, And I've, you know, dealt with that kind of uh, too mean humor most of my life. So it doesn't phase me too much. I just sort of roll my eyes at it and go, okay, you're having a, you know, you're having a moment. I'll step away until you're, you know, you calm down again. Um, so yeah, I just really sort of connected with him on that personal level. What about the new series? Who's your favorite there? Uh, Capaldi, 12th Doctor, hands down. Yeah. I just, I think he was just the most brilliant actor that they've brought in for it. Uh, he has such a deep and personal connection uh, to this show that I think that he really brought one of the most difficult and incredible portrayals of the Doctor to life because they they sort of, with Capaldi's Doctor, are really exploring some of his more troubling sides. And it takes an incredible amount of skill to be able to pull out the flaws in the character and highlight them and examine them and still make you love that character deeply. Um, So it really just, it took an actor of Capaldi's caliber to pull that off. Um, And again, there's that personal connection of, it's very hard to explain, but Capaldi is, is very similar to the third doctor in some ways that he has that very sharp, almost too mean type of humor. Uh, And there were lines of Capaldi's that I could absolutely see coming, out of my dad's mouth. Um, I think the moment that I really just sort of lost it was uh, when they're trapped uh, in the undersea base and Capaldi is trying, or I guess I should say, the 12th Doctor is trying to have a very difficult conversation with the other crew members about like, yes, I know we're in a difficult position, but I'm going to get you out alive. And Clara pulls out these flashcards of like emotional cue cards to get him through the conversation. (laughs) I'm like, we have totally done that with my dad. That is actually a thing. And I was just sort of over the moon about it because I was like, yep, I know exactly who that is. I know exactly what that kind of person is like. I have a card that says, sorry, I didn't realize it wasn't Aberdeen. God, that was such a perfect callback. (laughs) Although I do have to ask, like, why is that still in your card deck? Are like, are you still accidentally dropping people off in places that aren't like exactly where they need to go? Like, are you still dropping people off in Aberdeen? I mean, it's entirely possible, though I will say that something that uh, Capaldi seemed to handle that not all the other doctors could 
is that he and the TARDIS seem to be a little bit more in simpatico as far as taking the Doctor where the Doctor specifically wants to go. It seems like the Doctor is, I don't want to say more in control, because it, it feels like the TARDIS is a is much more of a character than at like every season the, doc, the TARDIS becomes more and more like a, an independent character. Uh, mm-hmm. But with Capaldi, there's a lot less open up the TARDIS doors and go, where are we now? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I think they also are going for a little bit of a different story style um, than they were earlier. You know, you had uh, other doctors have kind of weird things happen to take them to weird places. Um, and it and it worked for them. It did, it did work. But I think with Capaldi's, you have a little bit more of that inherent spaciness in, like, you know, when he shows up two weeks late uh, with Clara's coffee. And he just, you know, it's not even like, oh, I didn't realize the TARDIS brought me here wrong. It's just sort of like, yeah, I'm here now. What's yeah. the problem? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the alienness of the Doctor is, is so fascinating because when you start talking about the actors and what they bring to the role with Capaldi, I feel like he, he does a really good job in the alienness, but rather than my culture is different from your culture, though there is quite a bit of that in, um, I guess, series nine with his first series. Um, with him, it's the relationship with time. There's a, It's a lot more of an emphasis that he exists along a different time stream than, than it seems like some of the other doctors did, where they had less control of what they were doing in space. He has... I don't want to say about control, but he has a, a certain chronal fluidity where he he's fine with showing up when he does, uh, unless it seems distressing for someone he cares about. Yeah, and I think there's also a sort of uh, an ease with not existing at, along the same timeline as everyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about the beginning of series 10 uh, with Bill, and he's just been there for decades. Sure. And he's just totally at ease with it. And I can't imagine, you know, the same thing happening with uh, some of the previous doctors who really needed a person and to be alongside that person for um, a good length of time without freaking out about it. I mean, speaking of good lengths of time uh mm-hmm. in in heaven sent you're you're talking about what could possibly be billion a billion years spent uh, essentially by himself sort of um yeah. and then his reaction to it in in hell bent which brings me uh to my next question or statement really um again you have written a book uh and you have written a book for the black archives from Obverse Publishing, and you are writing specifically about the story Hellbent. Um, and if you, I know that on your most recent episode of um, This Week in Time Travel, you go into, you and Chip go into great detail about the book, and we're certainly not going to repeat all of that, but it's still fascinating to me talking to anyone who has mm-hmm. written a book. So I'm just kind of curious, um, this was your first book, correct? Uh, yes, this is, this is my uh, first book that I've ever written. It was an experience. <laughs> yeah, well, tell us about it. So, uh, how did you get started? Um, I, I, and I was originally going to ask you if, why you chose Hell Bent, but they approached you, didn't they? Yes, they did. They approached me. Uh, they had read my review of Hell Bent online on my blog and said, 
do you think you've got a 20,000 word novel in you on this? And I said, well, I had to cut out several thousand words from this review so that people on the internet would still read it. So yes, I think I have that many in me. Um, And so yeah, I spent uh, some time after that uh, putting in some more in-depth research. There was a lot of stuff that I sort of knew, but uh, it's a whole different experience when you need to actually pull sources and arrange things and cite things. Uh, for a book Um, and then uh, writing uh, frantically uh, definitely working to pressure of the deadline uh, because that was the only way some of it was going to come out and still be uh, enjoyable and readable at the end Um, but it was incredible it was uh, a really stressful but fun and thrilling experience and I'm really proud to have done it is writing a book something that you had wanted to do before this experience It definitely was, but something I was a little intimidated um, by because it's, you know, it's a big project. It's a massive process to um, be able to put in the research, um, to pull the research together coherently into something that's readable, uh, and then find some place that does actually want to publish the work that you've done. Um, And I was very thankful to have uh, Obverse and the Black Archive reach out to me and say, we'd like to publish it, just give us the material. Um, So there was no, you know, shopping the book around and trying to find someone who would be interested in publishing it. Uh, So yeah, it it was something I'd wanted to do, but it was a little afraid of. Um, And now that I've got the first one done and I can say, well, I have done it, uh, I'm probably going to be a little more likely in the future to reach out and say, another one, let's do it again. (laughs) So you would like to work with... um the Black Archive and, and write another episode review? Uh, or, not, sorry, Absolutely. I shouldn't say review because it's, that's not what that is. But um. <laughs> it's, uh, it's understandable. It's basically like a really, really, really long review. Uh, it's, uh, I would definitely love to. Um, I'm going to be watching the uh, first Jodie Whittaker series very closely uh, to see if there's any stories from uh, her first season uh, to tackle. Uh, I'd very much like to talk about uh, the work that she's doing um, and would love the opportunity to be able to talk about um, some of the women writers and directors who will be coming in for the next season. Of which there's quite a few. That that announcement yes. fairly recently was uh, really uh, invigorating to, yes. to be able to look at that list and, and know that that's reality as mm-hmm. opposed to just something that we and all want. totally like all new writers, all new directors. It's it's going to be a totally new show. Mostly all new directors. Um, I believe it wasn't in that most recent a- announcement, but Wayne Yip, who's previously directed, um, I believe has confirmed for the Christmas special. That Christmas, might... yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, he did such a good job with the previous episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic, especially because uh, there are so few uh, directors of color who have directed for the show. Um, I believe this coming season we'll have our third ever uh, person of color to direct the show. 
Um, that in, that number includes Waris Hussein, the very first director for Doctor Who. So it was Waris Hussein, and then we move up to the new series with two more uh, people of color and no women of color to direct. Mm. Um, but the writing team was was fantastic. We're actually um, kind of stagnant in terms of numbers of women. It's two women writers and two women directors, um, which is the same as what we've had for the previous two series. Uh, but we do have our first people of color to write for the show ever in the show's history, uh, one man and one woman. So um, that that is pretty historic and incredible uh, to have that ha- finally happen. Would you be at all interested in writing for uh, a classic story? I think, yes, I would be. There's lots of classic stories that I'm very fascinated by. I think the only sort of internal qualm that I have is that I don't know a lot about classic uh, TV production. Um, And that's not usually a huge part of writing these uh, books, but uh, it's a part that I'm very interested in um, and I think can add a certain level to it. in my examination of Hellbent, I talked about sort of the uh, visual references that Rachel Talalay brought in for uh, classic Western mm. movies and how that influenced um, basically the first act of Hellbent um, visually and story-wise. Uh, and that's something that just it would be slightly more difficult to do for a classic series because that's sort of an area of knowledge that I'm a little bit uh, I'm I'm a little bit lacking in, sure. uh, but it would be a challenge. It would be a fun thing to go back and uh, try to pull some more details about that. Certainly, also one of the other advantages is to have a lot of the creators be reachable via social media. So if you had a question about it, you could get in touch with them, or to have interview in-depth interviews um, that are that are available to you, whereas opposed to going back and talking about stories, not all of the creators who were responsible for the productions of those are, are still with us, or uh, maybe not all of that has been written down. I can see that could be a bit problematic. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, from a few of my friends who have actually done some research into the production history of Classic Who, there's definitely a lot of the, uh, details that have just simply been lost. Um, and uh, quite a bit where there's just conflicting memories of, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's been decades since some of these people have worked on the show. And some people just have very, very different memories of what actually happened uh, during the production of it. So, yeah, there's a little bit of lost history there, um, which is a little a little sad um but you know it's it's fun to be in an environment now where we can reach out uh to creators and uh where creators can volunteer information so readily and easily um rachel talalay after i think almost every episode that she directed um did in-depth blogs on her tumblr um basically breaking down how she directed uh some of the most crucial scenes uh from her stories so that's very incredible to have a creator spend that time to show us what it was like to make those episodes yeah it's really um such an advantage to have access to that kind of creativity Mm-hmm. Uh, having spent um, the last couple of days reading your book, I, I finished it, I guess, yesterday and then reread through a little bit of it today. I just wanted to just compliment you on uh, how well you of a writer you are uh, because it is both uh, academic without being dry. There's a certain personal 
voice that you use that sounds I see I'm, I'm trying to make it I'm trying to compliment you without insulting you and I'm, I, <laughs> I, I go just go for it I promise <laughs> I won't be insulted I, I, I've you know getting my degree I, I've read a lot of academic papers and and part of the problem is folks can get very jargony right like when they are mm-hmm. to uh, putting forth these ideas especially when talking about theory and review and you have done so in a way that is very easy i think for the reader to understand exactly what you mean um but to also sound as i'm sure you are well versed and, and researched um about it Uh, I felt like with every chapter in your book, I learned something new, and I definitely got a perspective that did not immediately occur to me, Uh, and I appreciate that. And so, and it has made me. This is the first of the Black Archive books that I I've read, and I I picked up um, Kara Denison's um, for Heaven Sent, and I'm I'm going to read that one next. But I I certainly think that I'm going to jump aboard and probably get quite a few more i think it's a it's a really worthwhile project and i'm i'm glad to see if if your piece is any indicator of the rest of the work i think it's it really is a um such an asset to fandom well thank you very much you should definitely pick up some more of the books in the series uh, i'm about halfway uh through kara's book um and i've read uh, a few of the other um books in the series and they've all just been fantastic it's fun to have a lot of really smart people thinking deeply about these stories yeah yeah very smart um and if you have recommendations i, I would certainly be more than happy to to hear them um because you know when we when we're dealing with fandom it's again nice to hear different people's voices about something that we love like doctor who but of course uh when we talk to doctor who fans we know that doctor who is not the end all and be all of fandom and one of the things that we like to do when we have guests on our program is invite them to suggest another program that they love so that we can talk about that would you tell us what you chose and and why you chose it Yes, I picked Sensate, uh, which has been uh, one of my favorite shows besides Doctor Who. Um, I think it had a really unique visual style. I think it had a really fascinating science fiction story. And I think it was just overall uh, a really kind of delightful and wonderful TV program. Um, and it just wrapped up this year. Um, they had two seasons and it was canceled uh, on an awful cliffhanger as well. Um, and thanks to some fan enthusiasm, we were able to convince Netflix to bring it back temporarily. We got one sort of series finale episode to wrap up the story. Um, so it's it's short. It's uh you know, definitely a little rushed at the end because they were wrapping up a bunch of storylines all in one uh, episode. Um, but it is quite wonderful. When did you first watch it? I first watched it basically as soon as it premiered on Netflix. Um, I was uh, fairly early into the series. Um, I'd seen it advertised and it just looked like such a fascinating concept. I was like, yes, please, would like all of this now. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a fan of the Wachowski's other works or, or um, J. Michael Straczynski's works? 
I was aware of some of their other works. Um, you know, I've, I've watched some of it, um, but I wasn't, I guess I could say, a, a huge fan um, previous uh, to Sensate. I, you know, I knew of their existence. I had seen some of their work um, and appreciated it, uh, but wasn't, wasn't coming in for them, just coming in for what I thought was going to be a great story. Sure, that makes perfect sense. I had never seen this show before. I saw it, uh, that it was on, and it looked like something interesting, but I didn't watch it until you picked it for this, and I crashed through it in about two weeks and watched the whole thing. <laughs> I, I I loved it. I have to say, first of all, somebody is a major Doctor Who fan. Um, we have characters named Leela and River, and of course, <laughs> a, a major guest star that we'll mention in a little bit. <laughs> but um, I, I loved in this show how they share abilities and also languages, and and um, through each other they find courage and a will to live. And it, it literally puts you in other people's shoes from different walks of life. And it was literally filmed in all the cities around the world that it said it took place in. That was fascinating to me. I don't know. Yeah, it was a very expansive sort of production. And expensive. I'm sure it was, yeah. Uh, Uh, Which I think is part of the reason it was canceled. It was just so, so expensive uh, to make that show. I'm sure it was, yeah. But the big thing about it were the eight characters um, and how different they were, but how, how they all connected together. So which character resonates most with you, both of the eight and also outside of the eight? I think for me, the characters I resonated most with uh, were Nomi and Amanita. Um, I think, you know, it was, their love story was one of the most just sort of delightful love stories that I have seen on television in a while. And I say delightful because, you know, I think it was a type of love story which they clearly had challenges. They had things that they had to overcome but not really sort of between them. It was outside forces that were making it difficult for them to sort of have the happy relationship uh, that they really wanted, that they were uh, pursued and attacked. But, but between them, there was so much love and so much affection and so much trust and support. You know, I think all of the sensates had to cope with how they were going to have relationships with their family and friends while something deeply upsetting and traumatic and confusing and unexplicable is happening to them. Um, and Amanita's really been there from the beginning, has known about this almost from the moment that Nomi did um, and supported Nomi and believed her through all of it. And I thought that was just kind of wonderful to see that uh, on television, Um, particularly because of everything that it represents for the types of relationships that we want to see on television uh, for queer couples. You know, it, it is so difficult to find a really wonderful queer relationship on television that I don't know it just it's there's so much joy in it there's so much love Mm -hmm. in it and it's not you know the the stress in it is about up against these you know evil global forces that they're fighting and it's not it, it there's there's not 
tension in their relationship and between them, um, that the relationship is actually what makes them stronger, which makes them both better people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's something that I really, really loved. Um, And uh, Jamie Clayton is just fantastic uh, as Nomi uh, Marks. And of course, Freema, our Freema from Doctor Who, our Uh Martha Jones as Amanita was just amazing. Her her American accent was a little eh at times, but you know what? It worked. We just, we went with it. It was fine. but they're just both sort of equally fantastic actors who did such incredible things with their roles um, that those two were just my favorite. Absolutely. I could just like get a super cut of all of their scenes and just watch that all the way through. <laughs> Drew, what about you? Uh, what characters resonate with me? Well, first, I just kind of I want to say with even with everything that Alyssa said, one of the things that I really appreciated about Nomi and Amanita's relationship is we don't. We, we we see it, we're introduced to it, and they have already been a couple for a while. And that's really mm-hmm. nice because we don't, we don't have to see, like, meet-cutes and we don't have to see how that got started. And it seems 100% acceptable. Uh, I mean, like, I, I immediately accepted their relationship going, yes, I get this. I, they feel like a couple. Um, and that's, that's really important because um, – and, and this is just so the folks listening know – while the both of you have watched it in its entirely, I have made it seven episodes into the show. And just with my schedule, I just didn't get a chance to to finish as much as I wanted to see. So once we get past a certain point, I'm going to be surprised by some of the stuff we talk about. And it's fine because <laughs> I'll, I'll, I will go back and watch it. This is a, a, an exceptional program. But it was really nice to see that relationship as it stood. And it's not the only relationship that I saw in this program that I was kind of like, yep totally get them as a couple completely Mm -hmm. understand that and you don't always get that sometimes the story the only reason that our characters are a couple is because the story needs them to be a couple right like there's sometimes Mm -hmm. never any chemistry not so uh in in their case um i don't know uh which character resonates most with me um normally it's the super nerdy one uh, on any television show because those are the characters that I relate to and there isn't really that typical super nerdy character uh, in this. Um, Kefius is is sort of in his uh, appreciation for Van Damme. But I think if I think about it, and I'm honest, I think Leto actually might be the character that sort of resonates with me. Um I, it, I I find it fascinating to watch a character who is so occupied with how others perceive him. And it feels like as the story progresses, that is, that is coming to a head. Um, and uh, I can, I can relate to that in, in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, and again, um, uh, Lido's relationship with um, Hernando, I loved. I could, I could watch the supercut of them. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's that. I think um, Alfonso Hera might be possibly my favorite part of that that program, um, or at least what I've seen of him. I really, I really dig him as a character. <laughs> so, how about you, Brent? Um, son. Yeah. 
I just yeah. loved her. I, I saw a lot of myself in her. She's quiet. She's loyal to a fault. I just can't explain it, but I just lit up every time she was on screen. I just loved her. Uh, but outside of the eight, Bug was hilarious. He just <laughs> killed me every time he was on screen. And just about fell in love with Daniela. She was she was awesome. Especially that scene where she calls the agent and the reporter and gets Leto. He's meeting with the producer and stuff. That was very funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just got introduced to Bug. I think uh, I think I got like I said seven episodes in. Bug just came into the story, uh, so I don't know where Bug is going. Um, but let's see where I was. I I know I was going to go into something about that. Oh yes, Sun. Um, and again, I should we should probably say we're going to spoil a, a bunch of stuff about this. Uh, so if you haven't watched it or if you haven't gotten as far as I have, um, feel free to finish watching sense and then come back. Um, Sun has just been sent to prison and she has just been introduced to her three cellmates. And within the f- two minutes of her meeting her cellmates, I, I actually stopped the program, came out of my room and, and told my wife that I just want to see a spinoff of Sun and those three, three other women uh, in prison. <laughs> and I, I think I could watch that, that show and, and be, pretty pretty satisfied yeah they're pretty great uh pretty pretty great combination together mm-hmm. this is an interesting show um and it's an interesting show for a number of reasons one it it feels like it's tackling subjects that i personally have not seen much of um in science fiction or on television and again my i don't i don't watch a lot of tv um, so maybe there is stuff like this that's happening now, but it seems very revolutionary. It's just heartwarming to see people from other countries uh, be represented as the actors are. It seems like the actors are representatives of those countries and um, lifestyles um, as opposed to we're going to have this uh, white guy be pretend that they're somebody else. You know, like, it, it feel like the mm-hmm. casting is appropriate. I feel like the scripting is appropriate. This seems like an unusual show because, um, from what I've been reading, rather than having one director per episode, they just sent directors to different parts of the world and directed those scenes. So each episode has multiple directors uh, per episode, which is fascinating, and it makes so much sense. Um, mm-hmm. And it gives each, like section with each sensate its own particular style Mm -hmm. like it definitely all comes together visually as being one episode but each sensate sort of stands out in their own unique way um which is really sort of fitting that you know they're all they're all almost in different uh tv shows that somehow get connected together yeah yeah, and I was going to ask you about that because this is obviously a, a show produced by Netflix, and mm-hmm. our, our um, it's on Netflix, so it dropped all at one time, correct? Yes, it did. See, this show I don't think could have existed on a well on a network or something like HBO. Obviously, the content of it. This is a show with nothing else has just a lot of great butts in it, um, <laughs> and and some of the subject matter, obviously, you and language you can't 
show on regular TV, but also I don't think audiences could watch this show on a weekly basis because this show has a very slow burn. It does not... Um, it uh, Let's see how best to describe this. I feel like it doesn't hand anything over to the audience. You have to sit and you have to observe and you have to be patient because the payoffs uh, come slowly but they also come naturally and I really can't tell you how much I appreciate that but watching it from a a logistics standpoint uh, you are watching eight very different stories that are slowly becoming interwoven Um, and as I was watching going I had this come on one evening I'm not sure you would get the audience's to watch episode two or maybe not between episode two and three because the tra- there's not a traditional um, story structure to this and the stakes for most of the characters really early on are very minimum. I mean, Nomi really gives us our first, like I was so worried for Nomi. <laughs> like I think I watched three episodes in a row because Nomi's initial situation is just so horrifying that uh, like that I think was the most I watched at one time until that got resolved. Um, mm-hmm. And then I could like take a, I actually took a break for a couple of days because it's kind of like, all right, that was intense. I, I don't, uh, I, I wanted to come back for, to it. But, yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's, it, it's something that is designed almost specifically for Netflix. I, I kind of look at it that way instead of saying it couldn't work on network TV. Cause I think what I have heard is that um, there's definitely uh styles that Netflix originals have gone with to keep people engaged and continue to binge the show. And of course, there's always been sort of, you know, you know, just cliffhangers and stuff that want to get people watching uh, week after week. Um, But I think uh, they have a good system of not just a cliffhanger, but building momentum right up to the very, very end. Like it can be very slow in the middle. And then they build up the momentum and carry that momentum through the end of one episode into the beginning of the next episode, and then have the slow bits and then build the momentum and drop Mm. the momentum in a way that keeps you binging and keeps you engaged because you just need to you need to carry on with that momentum. You have to keep watching. It feels natural to just sort of let the whole thing continue and keep playing over and over and over and over um, because that's where the momentum of the show is going. Mm-hmm. So I think they probably would have structured it differently had it been on uh, HBO uh, or another network. I don't think anybody else other than HBO could have shown quite so many butts. Um, so they're, probably they're really we just nice have to butts, assume. Though. They're very nice butts, and it's a very nice part of the show. Uh, but definitely, like, HBO is probably going to be the only one who can, you know, touch this show. Um, and also probably the only one that could throw enough money at this show. Um, That's true. Yeah. the This is such a sumptuous visual. And it's something that you can expect from the Wachowskis. And it's nice to know that both of them had their hands, uh, especially just for the seven episodes that I've watched. But I know for season one, it changes a little bit for season two. But you can see that there's an attention to detail and that they definitely give great consideration into how this show is perceived both um, from a script sense and from a cultural sense, but also from a visual sense. Like the the cinematography in this is excellent and the way shots are set up and the way um, it goes, transitions from one scene to the next is so brilliant. And it's tricky too because I think... 
I, this show feels like the kind of program that it's made for a certain audience that will will want to turn it on and watch it. But at the same time, you also have to consider audiences who might not initially want to take part in it, but you'd have to build interest. And it can be quite confusing. Let's say like you're not a science fiction person. This mm-hmm. show could be, I think, uh, difficult to digest because they don't, again, explain really what's going on until about four episodes in. And even when it does, they're not giving you the full story. Like I, I still, seven episodes in, no idea um, why this is happening, why, why these folks' lives are being interwoven. It may not explain it, uh, but I like what I'm seeing. I, it's interesting because I almost thought this might be a good beginner's thing for people who want to watch sci-fi but are a little wary of it. Um, because one of the things that can be difficult about science fiction is that usually a lot of explanations are necessary mm. to get people to sort of come up to speed with where everything is now uh, or why things are different wherever you are. Um, and it can sometimes be a little off-putting if you're not really a person who likes spaceships to get into science fiction and get thrown into a completely different world, a different universe where everything is fundamentally different. Um, and so it sense sort of ground science fiction in something that is very intently, very intimately familiar to people. You know, it's not spaceships or discovering like secret species. I mean, it is discovering secret species of people, but like it's it's not like a Harry Potter level. There's a whole secret society you know nothing about. It's this is has been an aspect of human history for a while that only some people have had access to. And there's evil corporations. But those are all like very familiar things to most people. Evil corporation is kind of a standard in a lot of different <laughs> genres. Um, and you're not you're not dealing with like super off-putting kind science fiction where it's something very, very different. Like, even though we don't know how or why this is happening and we don't understand a lot of the fundamentals of it, we can see that these people are connected in a way. We can see that there is something new that has happened to these people. Um, and so it, I think it it can be a sort of way to draw people in who might otherwise look at, you know, a show like Doctor Who and go, it's a phone box that goes through time and space. What what is happening right now? <laughs> no, you know what? That's a that's an excellent point. You're absolutely correct. Um, yeah, I, I didn't even consider because I am one of those people that likes spaceships. Um, yes, it's not a point of view that I, I was even considering. You're absolutely right. And yeah, so near future science fiction makes makes yeah. See, sense. my wife is not a science fiction person, but I think she would love this show because. Yes, there's a story uh, uh, that's sci-fi based, and you know the way they all connect is sci-fi. But to me, the majority of the show was just the the people yeah. and the characters mm-hmm. and the, and the interactions, and and to me that was at the forefront. All the other stuff was just kind of in the background there, right? 
at its heart, it's a show about people and right. about interactions between people. And it's a very character-driven drama, which mm-hmm. I knew exasperated some people who were like, come on, let's get to the plot. Tell me the you know mechanics of what's going on here, what's happening. Uh, I kind of liked that it was a slow burn. I didn't, you know, there were definitely parts where it went slow, but it was a bunch of different genres and a bunch of different stories really sort of clashing and coming together as one um and the drama from all of these different people talking to each other uh and learning about their lives was really what drove everything and that to me was what was so fascinating and unique about it um so i i really liked that that focus on it uh so being huge doctor who fans that we are uh tell us your reaction to the huge surprise at the rave at the end of episode 17. Oh my god, I love <laughs> Sylvester McCoy. I love him when he gets to go full just absolute Scottish on things and just that that whole thing of the seventh doctor just randomly appearing and shouting at the top of his lungs, "Holy shit!" was just <laughs> everything that I wanted. And I had no idea. I had not seen the casting news that he was joining the show. I don't think Maybe I'd forgotten, but I was just, I was amazed. I was just like, it's the doctor. He's here. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's really great because his role in the show is very much not the doctor. It's very, very, very different. So even though I kind of enjoyed seeing somebody from a show that I love pop up in Sensate, um, it was very easy to sort of separate the two roles uh, because Mr. Hoy is, is very, very different from the doctor. Um, and uh, he's got a timid sort of curse. Uh, that's a, wonderful to see evolve. So it was excellent. Were you familiar with too many, uh, either of you, were you familiar with any of the other cast? Had you seen any of these actors in previous projects? Because aside from Freema Adjaman and Sylvester McCoy and uh, Daryl Hannah, who I didn't recognize, uh, it was really kind of refreshing to not have that baggage of you know going, oh, hey, so-and-so, I saw them in this. It was nice to just be able to see mm-hmm. them as those characters. But I'm just kind of curious um, if either of you had seen them before. No, no. I, I They were all pretty much brand new to me other than a few uh, a, uh, actors, mostly in the supporting cast, um, who'd we, who had been in some genre television before. Um, but yeah, the of the main Sensate crew, it was kind of nice to have uh, a lot of uh, people that I wasn't super familiar with. Yeah, same here. I I knew a few of the uh, supporting cast, but of the actual eight, I'd never seen any of them before. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, that each person is from, each actor is from the place that they're supposed to be from. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think think that's what I was was reading as well. Uh, Again, I, I... didn't do as much reading as I normally do on these programs because uh, I didn't want to be spoiled. I mean, you can feel free. I don't want to like tamper any kind of conversation. Feel free to talk about whatever you wanted. But uh, I'm just kind of chugging along with this series and, and getting a chance to I usually watch it right before I go to sleep. Um, so, uh, But yeah, I, I haven't done as much research, though I'm always fascinated by behind-the-scenes anything so uh, i have i have done some uh, looking around kind of wanting to see what they who these folks were Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Alyssa, without spoiling the final episode, were you satisfied with the way the entire series was wrapped up? I was. I think they really did the best job they possibly could, given that, I mean, there was clearly a whole other season planned before it got canceled. So they're basically trying to pull uh, a season's worth of material um, into uh, one very large episode. Um, And I think, by and large, it did everything that I wanted it to, um, that we sort of wrapped up the main plot uh, with BPO satisfactorily, um, that uh, we got to see most of the characters given real justice in how their stories were wrapped up at the end. Um, I felt that I, I felt that a few characters could have done with a bit more time, uh, Cafeus being one of them, that I, I kind of felt that he had had such a fascinating story, um, and that wasn't really brought to a good or interesting resolution at the end. Like, it was fine. It wasn't like anything bad happened, but I would have wanted more time spent on figuring out uh, how his story resolved. Um, but for... Some of the characters that I was really passionately invested in, um, I thought it really brought their stories to the best possible ending, particularly Nomi and Neats. I felt that just their ending was delightful. Um, And to have that relationship be sort of the anchor of this final story and really the whole series was quite revolutionary and wonderful. and, uh, you know, as much as I love Will and Riley, there's, you know, we've, we've kind of seen that relationship before. So I was kind of okay that, uh, I was really okay that uh, Neats and Nomi got to really have the spotlight in this story. Um, and so, yeah, I was very, very happy. I wish they'd had a full other season because I, I can just tell there's so much interesting stuff there. And they really had to wrap up a lot of these threads very, very quickly. Um, but it was, you know, it was for the fans and it was everything we wanted to see. Well, yeah, well, as you mentioned that, I was uh, seeing that originally it was going to be five seasons. So where would you have liked to have seen it go? Oh boy, I think I would have liked to have seen um, a, a little bit more of the BPO story um, and a little bit more about what life would be like for Sensates after, um, in sort of what society they would build, about what they would do with mm-hmm. this corporation. Um, it just had to sort of get wrapped up all in one happy ending without having any complications or nuance afterwards, which clearly wouldn't happen. Um, so I would have liked to have seen more of that. Um, I would have uh, really liked to see more time spent on exploring what their lives would be like after all of this about, you know, it, it ended on a happy note of all of them together at one location, which was sort of necessary. But I would have liked to have seen them go back to their homes and try to figure out what their life looks like normally without all of this hanging over them. Um, and I think I would have liked to see more development of um, some of the side characters and what their roles would be like. Um, 
post all of this uh, and get some resolutions on some earlier threads of getting people sort of come full circle on, you know, what drove them throughout this entire experience. Um, a lot of these things were sort of explained, but they just sort of had to be introduced and then we had to go, well, okay, and on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Alyssa, as you had said, you were a part, um, and I'm sure a very vocal part of getting um, the show back back on for that special. I mean, I know that you, there was a big push once they announced that the show had been canceled after that cliffhanger, um, mm-hmm. getting back here and you, you definitely said we as part of the fandom, what is the sensate fandom like? I should qualify that I'm not a huge part of the sensate fandom. Um, I was definitely one of the people who spoke out on Twitter after it was canceled to mm-hmm. basically say like, you really need to let them do one wrap-up story because you cannot end it on this cliffhanger. Um, It doesn't really do this show justice to do that. Um, But... From my experience, and I'm not I'm not super involved with the Sensate fandom. I'm I'm kind of in over my head with Doctor Who fandom as it is, anyways. Um, but it's it it's you know it's it seems like a pretty lovely environment. Um, all of my interactions tangentially with people in the Sensate fandom uh, have been wonderful and delightful. Um, they've produced some sort of just amazing fan art uh, to celebrate these characters, um, and it's just kind of wonderful to see so. Many different people with so many different experiences uh, come to this show and find meaning in it. You know, I think what they did really well was have a lot of diversity without necessarily trying to toot their own horn about it. Mm. And what I sort of mean about that is they wanted to show the human experience and they did not want to show only an aspect of the human experience. It's not that all the sensates came from, you know, the United States and they were all white and straight, you know? Like, they showed people from all over the world. They showed people of all different gender identities and sexual orientations. They showed people from various different classes in different industries doing different work. Like, it was something that it couldn't show the full human experience, but it tried as much as possible to show a wide range of the human experience um, and not show us only a narrow perspective on it. Um, So that was something that was reflected in the fandom, that you could see so many different people coming to the show and finding something interesting, finding something meaningful in it. Uh, And that's that's really something I appreciated about it. Yeah, well, that's excellent. It's nice to see that kind of representation and it's nice to know that that bleeds through to the fandom itself Mm -hmm. uh speaking of fandom um because i think it's almost time for us to wrap up our time together um are there any new projects in the works for you uh, not at the moment. Um, I am currently uh, gearing up for uh, doing uh, the blog once the show starts coming back. Yeah. Um, Chip and I have been on a little bit of a hiatus with this week in time travel, but we should be coming back very shortly. Um, and so, yeah, I'm uh, getting ready to pick back up my old pace uh, and get started with all of the different work that I do. So you're taking a much deserved break. Uh, after yes. after all of this, and and yes. I'm looking forward to seeing you back in action. If people want to listen to your works, read your works, or just get in touch, where can they find you? 
I'm on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. Uh, and you can find This Week in Time Travel at thisweekintimetravel.com. That's excellent. Well, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me on. And thank you for coming and listening to Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixel who. Who and Company can be found on iheartradio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany. Support the show on patreon.com slash whoandcompany. Or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month.